In the future, roving bands of comic book podcasts will savage the wasteland, once known as the internet. One podcast, the Grawlix Podcast, may not be the biggest, may not be the funniest, may not be the most well-spoken. Wait, what was my point again? Oh yes, the Grawlix Podcast. Listen to it at GrawlixPodcast.com. That's G-R-A-W-L-I-X Podcast.com. Hey, Paul, look over there at the size of that moose. Son, that's no moose. That there is a pile of bullspit. Welcome, Moose Pack, to an all-new episode of Bullspit with Moose. I'm your host, Moose, and on this episode, the Bullspit is about G.I. Joe, Transformers, Voltron, and the Academy Awards? What is it that connects these things, you may be asking? Well, it's my very special guest. It is my honor to present to you actor and radio veteran, Mr. Neil Ross. Hi, everybody, and thank you for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. Good to be with you. No, I'm glad you're here. As we talked a little bit about in the uh, pre-recording, we had talked about your uh, book, and that was one of the conditions for doing the interview. Is when I set up the interview, you said you wanted to talk about your book, which well, is, we don't uh, have exclusively focus on well, the book. Yeah. All I requested was a chance to plug it somewhere in the interview, but we can talk about anything you like. And the book is uh, "Vocal Recall: A Life in Radio and Voiceovers." And that pretty much tells the tale. It does tell the tale. And, you know, I, I, I do have a surprise for you. Okay. Um, you were... This isn't going to cost me money, is it? No, it didn't cost me anything either. A long-lost child that I'll have to send to college? You were uh, very kind and uh, outspoken about all the uh, actors and stuff that you've worked with over the years in your uh, work? Well, I meant every word of it. Uh, they're absolutely lovely people. You couldn't meet any any any, any folks better. So I wanted to see if I could return the favor. And I reached out to a few acquaintances of mine. Um, Larry Kenny, who will be on the show next month, voice of uh, Lion-O from Thundercats, um, said... Well, he hasn't worked with you, he's, you know, chatted with you at a few shows, but all in all, you're a very nice guy. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah, I was going to say our paths, unfortunately, have not crossed that often. But uh, he's, a, an, he's an awesomely talented fellow, and uh, he, he, he and a very nice guy to boot. And then this one, this wasn't even about me, and I blushed. So... I'm supposed to tell you how this person, and I'll tell you who it is when we're done. Well, not when we're done, but when I'm done reading it. But this person wishes I tell you how they aspire to be a less talented, less handsome, less wealthy version of you in their next life. There's no way they could approach your badassness in this life or any other lifetime. Was it was it Brad Pitt? No, it was Mr. Rob Paulson. Oh, bless his heart. Oh, well, it, it, Rob doesn't need any help from me. He's uh, he's another one that I, I'm just in awe of. I say he's on top of his game. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, I mean, you spoke so highly of everybody. Like I said, I just, I wanted to see if I could return the favor. Because, I mean, like you, your stories about Maurice and everybody, it was just like, well, I know some of these guys. Let's see if, you know, I could reach out and get something in return, you know? That was very kind of you. That's good to hear. Uh, you never know. As uh, the poet Robert Burns uh, said, would that God had the gift to gee us to see ourselves as others see us. And um, you don't get to hear that very often, but that, that was lovely. Thank you. You're welcome. I do want to ask, are you by nature uh, an anxious person or do you just have anxiety when it comes to... Uh, Interviews and recordings, not interviews, uh, auditions and recordings. 
Uh, yes, I am by nature uh, an anxious person. I think it may be genetic. I think there's a little bit of that in on my mother's side of the family, and I think I inherited some of it. And I think it's the reason that I ended up having a wee bit of a problem uh, with the drinky winkies and had to stop. And over the years, I've sort of developed some coping mechanisms. But it's funny, when I get in front of a microphone, that's not really when the anxiety happens at all. I'm fine there. It's everywhere else I can get anxious. It's the lead up to or the... uh... Oh, I can get anxious. Is there going to be a traffic accident and I'll be late? You know, this, that, the other thing. Uh, Then I get out of there and it's, oh, maybe I should have said this or I shouldn't have said that. And oh my God, why didn't I think of this? And... And I will probably not listen to this show, no offense, uh, but, you know, I come out of these things and I'm just beating up on myself for stuff I either didn't say or, sh- or should not have said, uh, But as I, which is kind of contradictory because I'm talking into a microphone now. But anytime I'm acting or auditioning, uh, no, that's, that's a breeze. That's, that's where I'm relatively calm. If it makes you feel any better, the only reason I, I don't listen to my shows again because after I edit them, I've I've now heard them when I record it and when I edit it. And they're usually within a few days of each other. Mm-hmm. That, that's too much of listening to myself talk. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. You know, it's, it's funny. A lot of actors don't watch their own shows. They watch everybody else's. And I can kind of understand that. Well, you yeah. are your hardest critic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the reason I asked. It is best, but not, no, I beat him out on that one. <laughs> I say the reason I asked was because in your book, I I think, and now I couldn't, I could be wrong, but I'd have to go back and look. But I think the word you used the most was flop sweat. Hmm, could be, could be, because uh, I know it was at least used once or twice in every chapter. Once you got into adulthood. Interesting. Interesting. God, I didn't realize that. I I should have found some other way of expressing it. I, I, I probably used it too much. And well, no, I, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense, especially if you have anxiety issues. It's, yeah. does, does the general public even know what flop sweat means anymore? Maybe they do. I don't know. And I, I, I hadn't heard it until Steve Allen talked about it. He actually wrote a song. I mean, it, he was not... It was a, it was a joke song, but it was called Flop Sweat, and that was the first time I'd ever heard the term. But uh, uh, boy, I, I've sure lived it on on more than one occasion. Uh, speaking of and joke songs, basically means sweating bullets because you think you're going to flop yeah. in a show business situation. Speaking of joke songs, there's a story at the beginning of your book when you talk about when you were born in London. It was tail end of World War II, wasn't it? Yes. Uh-huh. And then years later, you end up doing a, was it PBS special on Werner von Braun? It wasn't really on him. It was on the American uh, uh, space program. But yeah, he was, he was in it. And there, there was a segment devoted to him. And, and as he soon was as, like, as soon as you mentioned, like, as soon as you mentioned it in the book, my mind went to Tom Lear's. Uh, Werner von Braun song. Yes, yes. Boy, that's an ancient reference. It's, yeah, I it, know. For somebody who's in their 30s, I could pick up on some old stuff. Yeah. It, just recently, it's funny, the, Tom Tom Lehrer was a guy who, a very highly intelligent guy, still alive as far as I understand yeah, it. He's 93. Yeah. But he was a, a very talented mathematician, I, I believe taught at like Harvard and MIT, mm-hmm. places like that. But he also had this um, remarkable ability to uh, write songs and perform them and sing them and, and accompany himself on the piano. And uh, they were all satirical. And uh, lately, these oddball references to him have been popping up. I was watching an episode of Better Call Saul. Have you ever seen that show? Yeah, and uh, the Element song. Uh, yeah, the... the, the the uh, I guess he's a science teacher that that uh, they're going to turn into some sort of uh, a, a drug manufacturer, 
And and the first time you see him is in his lab, and he's dancing around, singing along with that Tom Lehrer song based on the elements. And I thought, oh my god, I hope they sent Tom a couple of bucks. Yeah, no kidding. It's like I remember when I was younger, I was like one of the few in my generation to have ever heard of this guy. Yeah, and now he's everywhere again. <laughs> Well, everything old is new again. There was a time when he was quite well known, and then I think he—I think he just stopped uh, recording and performing, and people gradually uh, forgot. But in the late '50s, early '60s, he was—he was quite well known. And uh, yeah, I'm sure most of his stuff is online, folks. If you—if we're going, if you're sitting there saying, "Who the hell are they talking about?" <laughs> Tom Lehrer. It's L-E-H-R-E-R, I believe, and. Uh, I know there's a couple of things on, on, on YouTube. You can actually see him performing some of these songs. And uh, they're quite brilliant. Very, very clever satire. Like For, from a guy who was really not in show business. No, <laughs> like he, he was a teacher. And he had the kind of act that a lot of us would kill for. And yeah, he was, I mean. It is goof on the side. So It's like he went, he gave up teaching which is probably the best thing, you know, best career choice he ever made for this uh, satire business. Well, I don't think he ever completely gave up teaching. I think he somehow juggled both worlds and eventually just went back to the academic life and didn't do didn't do any more performing. It's like he gave up satire after I can't remember who it was. Somebody won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he's huh. like, <laughs> "There's nothing." And he yeah. goes, "Satire's dead." Yeah, there's yeah. nothing better to write, right? Yeah, you know, but so did you want to explain Werner von Braun, or do we just press on? Oh, that, I, I probably should actually, because because yeah. uh, again, people are like, who are they talking about? Well, to 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 do the Reader's Digest version, he was a guy who was designing uh, uh, rockets for Hitler. In Germany toward the end of World War II, and he was the guy who invented what was called the V-2, which was a rocket and uh, filled with explosives. And they would launch these things from Germany, and they were designed to uh, come down on top of some place in London. And uh, th this is they were lobbing these things at London while I was in the womb, and then for the first year of my life. So. Uh, Years later, I'm in a studio, well, uh, years later, Werner von Braun at the end of the war, uh, then uh, is, uh, I guess, captured by the Allies, and they realize his genius, and so he is sort of rehabilitated, and it ends up uh, more or less... Facts. <laughs> more or less uh, running a, a big part of the U.S. space program, and... Um, I just mentioned idly to the producer, you know, this is interesting. I'm, I'm reading all this uh, wonderful uh, copy about this guy who uh, basically tried to kill me. <laughs> but I said, I know he, was, he wasn't trying to kill just me. He wanted to try to kill everybody in London. So, you know, I know it was nothing personal. <laughs> well, as uh, Tom wrote, once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? It's not my department, says Werner von Braun. Yes, he was. Uh, yeah, that's one of the songs if you, you should look for if you look up Tom Lehrer online. What is, I think it's titled Werner von Braun. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. You had an interesting uh, radio career. You seem to have the... Uh, Depends on the definition. Uh, interesting. <laughs> you seem to be like the death nail for a lot of uh, runs. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen... Uh, the radio business. I mean, I'm not alone. <coughs> oh, you're, you're right. I mean, I had a buddy who uh, was also in radio and doing much better than I, I did. And he was aware of my history. And, and in the wake of yet another disaster, I'm telling him what happened. And he just said, you have the worst luck of anybody I know. I just seem to get into these situations where the minute I show up, it's, uh, well, let's change the format. Let's fire the program director. Let's uh, change the call letters. Let's sell the station. But I was sort of like the, the jinx of the radio business for a while. Uh, say, if you didn't have anxiety before, that should give it to you. 
What a great profession for a guy who's prone to anxiety, going into a business where you can be fired in two seconds for no reason. And, and uh, you know, I used to, eventually I thought, you know, it's almost like a race. <clears throat> the minute I take a new radio job, the, the, the clock starts ticking and we see which happens first. Either I get the hell out of here or they fire me. Well, it's a good uh, thing you didn't have a gambling problem. You start betting against yourself. Yeah. Oh, and no, I had enough problems without gambling. Thank you. Uh, I think KYA was my favorite one from your stories because you, you got you were getting the memos that KYA is not for sale. Stop the rumors. And then a yeah, week later, yeah. KYA is sold. <laughs> it's just the greatest. It's like, what? <laughs> Well, I mean, there's a there's a million stories uh, like that. I mean, there's there's stories of uh, talent going to the general manager and going, "Look, I think I'm going to buy a house. Now I got to put out a lot of money and I got to sign a bunch of stuff." And it's you know, if you think there's any chance that this place is going to you know blow up or you're going to want to, no, 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 we love you. Everything's fine. Corporate loves us. Go ahead, buy a house, live a little. God love you. A week later, you're fired. It's it's just these kinds of stories are legion in the radio business. It really. I, I used to, eventually I got to the point where I said it's the only business where they eat their young and they're old. It, it's, <laughs> they have no shame. They'll eat everybody. And now, <clears throat> ever since deregulation in 1996, I mean, it's it's just brutal because now it's all owned by these two or three huge corporations. And uh, don't get me started. The business that I was in essentially doesn't even exist anymore. They still have towers and call letters, but it ain't the it ain't the business I was in. Not that that was that great, but compared to today, it was paradise. Yeah, I say now it's a global conglomerate. And as a listener, you can you can see it. I mean, it's iHeartRadio has their grouping. It's not the independent stations. It's media conglomerates now, and it just it feels weird. Well, what they've done, the I use a restaurant analogy. Let's say you're in a town and it's got a nice mix of a French bistro, an Italian place, there's a Chinese place, a Japanese place, an Indian place, or this or that. And some huge corporation comes in, buys every restaurant in town and turns them all into McDonald's and Wendy's. Now, the analogy breaks down because someone else can always open up another restaurant, but there are a finite number of radio stations. You can't just go on the air. You have to have a license, and they've bought all the licenses. And now they can just dumb the product down, and, he, and they don't have to worry about it because you've got nowhere else to go except satellite radio, which is growing by leaps and bounds. So It is. Yeah. I, I have a soapbox moment here, um, and I wanted to get your opinion on it. What do you think about the phrase voice actor that 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 uh qualifier doesn't actor yeah it, it's a slightly different skill uh you know michael bell uh, used to turn it around and refer to those people as face actors <laughs> 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 but it is a little bit of a different skill and not everybody who is a face actor can be a voice actor. I've heard some abysmal performances by face actors whose face work I loved, but somehow they get in a, a voiceover studio and they don't quite know what to do. It's not it's any more that I would necessarily know what to do in an on-camera situation because I have little or no uh, ex experience with that. And if I was going to go on camera i would work like hell i'd take classes i'd learn everything i could but the face people not i i shouldn't generalize but a lot of or some face people just feel like they can breeze in and it's another day at the office and it doesn't it uh i didn't hear the interview but my parents told me about it they they claimed they heard an interview with james earl jones where he said voiceover was the hardest thing he's ever had to do and that includes, as you know, uh, uh, stellar on-camera work, but also stage. He was a big stage actor yeah, for a long time. He's done. He's run the gambit. Yeah, and yet he said voiceover was was tougher than anything he'd 
he, he never had to try to do up to that point, according to this. Well, and that, that's why I, I personally don't like the, uh, I guess it's the qualifier. I mean, voice artist, maybe. But at the yeah, end of the day, you guys are still my, actors. My tax guy put that on my tax return one year. I <laughs> expected to hear from the IRS, you know, what exactly is a voice artist, if you don't mind? Uh, no, I don't mind it. I, I think it's I think it deserves its own little own little title. As I say, it's a, it's a very it's a, just a little bit different. Because, I mean, as well, the face actors, as you uh, you and Michael have referred to them at best, they get generally speaking, there's maybe five or six takes before somebody cries about it and they're done from what I've seen. But I've read about even in your book instances where you'll have, you know, the voice artists will have to do upwards of 18, 20 tries or more to get the performance that a director wants. And that's a lot of doing the same thing over and over again with just minor tweaks. Well, I've led to believe I'm led to believe that that sort of thing happens in the on-camera world as well. Uh, you know, some directors just want a lot of takes uh, for one reason or another. And, you, and you get hosed when you're not Sylvester Stallone showing up for a Walk of Fame reveal. Ah, well, I, that's another story. But <laughs> I, I just, you know, Wally Burr told me a story once. I keep talking about Wally Burr. I assume everybody knows who I'm talking about. He directed G.I. Joe and Transformers, voice directed. I say he's probably one of the most legendary voice directors from that era. Yeah, yeah, he, he really is. He's uh, something of a, a legend. And he was telling me, he wouldn't tell me who the person was, but he said he had, this was years ago, he had worked with a celebrity doing a voiceover thing for a, an animated project. And the guy did the line, and Wally said, okay, that's the attitude, that's exactly what I'm looking for, but I'm going to need two, three times the energy, okay? Take two. And he was looking at the guy through the glass, and he said, everything that I wanted happened on his face but the line reading was exactly the same as the first one. And Wally tried again. I need more energy on this. Can you give me some more energy? And again, wonderful things happened on this guy's face. But the voice sound, take three, sounded it's the same as takes one and two. And Wally said, I finally gave up. And he said, I don't think he was trying to be difficult. I think he was trying to give me what I wanted. But it's just, you know, his his whole focus was how he looked. He he I, he it, he didn't appear to have ever thought much about how he sounded. So he's used to showing people, uh, but and, yeah. He's used to emoting, yeah. you know. And I, it's 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 a funny thing. Uh, you have to. I mean, they can't see you. If it's radio, they're never going to see you. If it's animation, what they're going to see is a drawing running around. And you have to give it a little extra life in your voice that maybe isn't called for on camera in some instances you you may feel like you're overacting and if you were on camera it would be overacting but f for an animation project it's not overacting and it takes a while to uh to figure out exactly how to do that as i say some face folks come come in and they're fine from the get-go somehow they lock right in and they're 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 fine but not all of them not all of them. Before we go much further, I want to mention, listeners, you really need not only his book, but you need to make sure you read. Read books. You gather copious amounts of information. And had I not read his book, this would be a completely different interview. By reading, you pick up on things that you wouldn't have known. You get answers to questions that you want. And then you can expand on questions that you may have. For instance... Uh, one of the original questions I had was, what was it like, you know, well, act, it was actually more, why did you end up voicing two characters on Voltron? Mm -hmm. And then you kind of explained the uh, the way the contracts were written out with how many uh, voices you guys could do in a series, etc. Was yeah. that the norm for shows back then, where it was just try to get as much out of the actor for... On the low end, or is that just Voltron? 
because they weren't sure how the show was going to do with all the editing and animation that they had to adjust. I think in the case of Voltron, they were very, very conscious of it, but it, it permeated the industry in the 80s. And what I'm talking about is the fact that in the union contract, they could ask you to perform up to three different voices in an episode without having to pay any more. We eventually got them to pay a little more for the third voice, but essentially they were getting three for the price of one. And, and they would keep that in mind when they cast. And in the case of Voltron, they cast uh, five of us, I think. Yeah. And they cast all five with the idea that we could do other uh, voices, that we could double and triple, so that they didn't have to bring in any other actors to fill in smaller roles. We were expected to cover everything. And I think on a couple of occasions they did have to bring people in, but generally speaking, they didn't. And that sort of thinking did seem to permeate a lot of the industry back then. They would, if it, you know, they were trying to cast a part and it came down to two different actors, the question would be, well, can they both uh, double? Uh, well, so-and-so can't really double. He's not good at it. But Neil Ross, yeah, he can, he can do two or three voices, no problem. All right, give it to Neil. You know, the other guy's out of the running. I want a guy who can double and triple. Now, I don't think that's prevalent today. I think so many for so many years now, they've been using celebrities uh, who, generally speaking, can't do that. And I think they've just sort of gotten out of the habit and they don't worry about it anymore. But back then, yes, it was a, it was a big, big deal. If you could if you could double and triple, uh, you got a lot of work. If you couldn't, uh, it was tougher to get work. Well, because, I mean, it, it seemed weird as I was, you know, as I was diving into your credits list, you were Keith and Pidge, which are two main characters. And yeah. generally in animation, you get, you know, you're, you're a main character and then you're like newscaster or, or guy in blue dress or you know, something like that. Yeah. Clerk in grocery store. Yeah. No, well, it's funny. I auditioned for the part of Keith, and that's what I got. And they just sprang Pidge on me one or two episodes in, and I I didn't even realize it was going to be a recurring character. I thought it was just going to be in the one episode. And we decided on the voice in about uh, ninety seconds, which <laughs> was astonishing. But apparently, you know, worked out okay. So I say that I really liked the original run of Voltron. Now, the, the, the most recent one uh, that Netflix had was really good, too. But there were a couple in the middle that just didn't do it for me. Well, they brought it back and they, they used uh, early CGI instead of animation. I think it was CGI. Anyway, it was, it was a completely different look. And uh, that was the Voltron, the fifth dimension or something like that. Yeah. It did not do well. But yeah, you were in, off the top of my head, you were in three iconic shows in the 80s. It was G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Voltron. Yeah, those are the, one, those are the ones the fans seem to remember. The only, the other character that, that I hear a lot about at uh, conventions is uh, when I did uh, Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin, in Spider-Man and his amazing friends in the mid-90s. A lot of people remember that, but you're right. Uh, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Voltron, those are the big three. And you had mentioned in the book something to the effect of you weren't, you were curious as to why, you know, you, you couldn't speak for why the shows are still popular today. Um, I, I have some theories, but. Well, being a fan of the original show and being in that age group that grew up watching the originals my general thought process is the shows are still popular due to the uh i, I call it the hand-me-down generation mm -hmm. where we we're adults now well at least on speak, paper speak for yourself i say at least on paper we're adults <laughs> and our kids are watching these shows with us like my son is a huge transformers fan and he's seven years old. Yeah, that's and what I'm, he's going what? back and watching. You know, now he's going back and watching the original Transformers. I won't let him watch the movie yet mm -hmm. for obvious reasons, because Optimus is his favorite character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, he's a little bit young for that heavy dose of reality. So yeah, were I. So was I. Most of. <laughs> <clears throat> for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, there was a movie made of the uh, Transformers, not the Michael Bay stuff. I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, the mid '80s and uh, Transformers the movie, and uh, they man they they wrote a script in which. Uh, I don't know, a third of the way in, Optimus Prime dies. And uh, our 13, 14-year-old fans were not ready for that one, I'll tell you. And, and anyone uh, younger wasn't ready at all. No, no, no. And I made the mistake. The, the equivalent would be for uh, Marvel Infinity War. I took my son to see that, and when Thanos did the snap... And half the superheroes died. Mm -hmm. He curled up in a ball on the chair and didn't move for the rest of the movie. Mm. He wouldn't even watch Endgame. I was like, I promise you they come back. He was, nope, I don't care. Mm. I was like, but they come back. <laughs> you know. Well, it's, you know, certain ages, you're just not ready for certain things. And it's like, yeah, they're, they're your heroes. You don't expect the mm -hmm. hero to die. Except you guys, the actors, knew that was a bad call. Yeah, I, you know, we were obviously ang angry because we didn't want to lose uh, these characters. We didn't want to lose the work. But what I, what I kept saying was that they don't respect the producers. They don't respect the audience. I mean, the audience has invested emotionally in these characters they love these characters and you're just gonna kill them all just so you can sell some new toys you know there's got to be a better way to to do this i know you want to bring in new characters and sell more toys okay i get it but wow you know, a bloodbath like that it, 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 it this isn't gonna this isn't gonna fly i just knew it and of course, the picture did horribly. It has it was since bad been... enough that they released uh, GI Joe straight to video. Yeah, they were going to pull the same stunt in GI Joe. Uh, Duke Michael Bell's character was, uh, dies midway through. Well, I, they, I, they changed it into well, he's in a coma. <laughs> okay, I guess that's marginally better. GI Joe, the soap opera. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, we we were all horrified, but uh, you know, we weren't in charge. So I say, because yeah, when you got to the uh, when I got to that part of the book, I was like, yes, somebody had a brain. I wish people I, I wish people would listen to the brain. Yeah, I well, I I just I think on that in that instance, the tail was madly wagging the dog, and. Um, well, it is what it is. And, you know, as the years went by, the fans have rediscovered the movie on video cassettes and DVDs, and they're older now, and they, they you know, they, they, they enjoy watching it again. Like, and it still brings a tear to your eyes. And yeah. There's another credit that you're not, it doesn't say what you did, but it's another show I really liked. It was Pirates of Darkwater. Do you remember what you did on that show? You know, that's a long time ago. I was not a regular. I think they just brought me in to do guest appearances. I would play third pirate from the left, uh, that kind of thing. Okay, because, yeah, it just, like, it just says eight episodes. It doesn't say, like, additional voices or anything. It's just eight episodes. It's like, well, you're not a huge help. Yeah. Well, if you're just doing a one-off, they don't usually list it. I was very lucky at that time. I had developed this reputation of being able to do a lot of different voices and accents. And so when things, when they needed a, you know, an incidental voice or a, a one-off character up in Hanna-Barbera, I would be one of the people they would think about bringing in. I did a bunch of episodes in the animated version of Dukes of Hazard because they did that gimmick where they had the Dukes of Hazard go around the world. Back where everybody had a cartoon? Yeah. So I would be, you know, I would use my all purpose uh, European accent. I would be the Greek uh, shop owner or whatever you want. And uh, so I, I think I was in almost every one of those. I, I think they only did 13. But Interestingly enough, out of all of your characters, the one I can hear most clearly is probably one of your more obscure ones for a lot of people. 
Mm -hmm. It's uh, Whitley White from Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Obscure, but beloved. Yeah. That was one of my favorites. You know, I mean, I loved Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, the movie. (laughs) And then when the cartoon came out, Oh, I, I didn't miss an episode. Yeah, it, it surprised me. I, I guess it did okay. It didn't do great. Um, and it actually got canceled, and then at the last minute they brought it back. But I thought some of the scripts were brilliant. And we had this absolutely killer cast with uh, John Aston and um, Kath Soucy and uh, Maurice Lemarche. And uh, who else? Oh, uh, Cam Clark. I'm going to forget somebody, and I apologize. But, uh, you know, a wonderful cast and, and these great scripts. And I had so damn much fun playing Whit- Whitley White. I based him on this uh, long-gone Los Angeles newscaster who was in love with the sound of his own voice. And uh, it, it was surrealistic. If you remember, uh, the, the whole show happens in this little town called San Zucchini, and Whitley White is the appears to be the only broadcaster in this town to the point where he he's in the studio and he throws it to himself in the field. Now, with more on that story, here's Whitley White. Thank you, Whitley. <laughs> I'm down here at the wharf or wherever he was. And I just I loved that character. And I was always about a, a, a half a second away from cracking up with laughter over the clever stuff they wrote and how good I thought it sounded. And I just had more damn fun doing that that sh- that show. I can't tell you. I just geeked out. It's OK. <laughs> Oh, I appreciate you doing that. That was fantastic. <laughs> Where was I going? Uh, you got to play Rambo. For yes, I did. For sixty-five episodes, you played Rambo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rambo, the Force of Freedom. Because it couldn't be too bloody. Yes. Well, we were under tremendous uh, pressure doing that. You can't do this for a kid's show. So they made the show incredibly unviolent to the point where there was less violence in in the Rambo than 90% of the other cartoon shows. But somehow we cruised along non-violently for 65 episodes and the show did pretty well. See, I don't remember the cartoon, but the way it's described, I picture it as more of a less scientific more action-packed MacGyver. Yeah, it could be. It's so long, I I can't remember a single plot. I remember one or two things that happened at recording sessions, but as far as the storylines, they're all lost in the mist of what's left of my mind. In G.I. Joe, you have a very long list of credits. Most notably is Shipwreck. I got to get back into that voice and that character. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so awesome. Hey, Eddie, it's your old pal Shipwreck. Just wanted to thank you for sticking by me for all these years, and you can tell Bachma that a loud mouth and smarmy attitude are all part of this sailor's charm. Keep fighting the good fight. Yo, Joe! Oh, I love it. Thank you. Um, that's the biggie. And you're listed for the the, the one that uh, through me was Polly. You split that with Frank Welker. Now, was that you voiced him and Welker did the animal sounds? No, 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 no. It was not, nothing that organized. I think sometimes uh, Polly would be in the show, but my character, Shipwreck, or none of my other characters would be, so he'd have Frank do it. And sometimes when I was there, he'd have me do it. And sometimes when I was there, he'd forget that I was there and he'd have Frank do it. And it wasn't a, a big issue but between uh, Frank or me. You know, it's <laughs> whatever gets the job done. You, you want to be the paid. Who cares? <laughs> want to be the parent today. Be my guest. No, it was all uh, no thought went into that at all. It just what the whims of Wally Burr, basically. And then with Transformers, you were Springer, Bone Crusher. Mm-hmm. Um, Hook, slag, bone crusher, and springer. That's how I managed to memorize them. Not alphabetical. Somehow that just flows off the tongue. It does flow off better than otherwise. It's bone crusher, hook, springer, and slag, and which sounds like a really bad divorce, divorce, divorce. Uh, a firm divorce attorney. attorney. Yeah. 
You think you're going to get rid of me? Well, it's not going to happen. You know why? Because I've got Hook, Slag, Bone Crusher, and Springer on my side. <laughs> Sweetheart. <laughs> you're not getting half of this place. <laughs> that would make for an interesting uh, law firm, actually. <laughs> yeah. We'll create a new series. Better call Hook, Slag, Bone Crusher, and Springer. You also played uh, Mean Gene Okerlund in Hulk Hogan's Rockin' and Wrestling. What was it like That's playing uh, Mean Gene? Well, they didn't give him very many lines. It was just, but but he was at, he was in every show at least one line and uh, one line one paycheck. So, uh, yeah, that was another weird thing. I show up to audition and it's all these wrestlers that they're basically they're, they're trying to voice match these these wrestlers and they're all guys who sound like this you know which i can do but it's kind of painful if i have to do it for a, a lot of takes and i thought you know there's guys around who just sound like that naturally that's who they're gonna cast and i'm thumbing through this stuff i'm i'm i'm, I'm thinking i may not even read for this i don't want to destroy my voice just for a, you know a job and then I suddenly see this picture of Mean Gene, and I thought, oh, God, this guy I can do. And I went to the person running the audition. I said, I'd like to read for this. And he said, ah, it's probably not even going to be in the show. No, no, I want you to read for, uh, you know, Brawler McFoonman or whatever. And I'm, you know, I'm auditioning for all these wrestlers, and I keep saying, you sure you, you don't want me to? And he finally says, oh, all right, do, do an audition if you have to. But he's probably not going to be in the show, and I do one take and leave. And of course, he get—I got none of the other parts, but I got the Mean Gene part. And he was in every episode, as far as I know, at least one line. And so that was lovely. And this is how I knew I—I I live in a relatively small, big city. You mentioned Omaha, and I got—you uh, know—I perked up a little bit from the book. Yeah, well, well, you must have listened to to KOIL, right? Yeah, yeah, that was a, that's a legendary radio station. You'd be amazed if you go online and look it up. Some major talent uh, passed through that station over the years. One of which was Mean Gene Okerlund. I don't think he was in the radio business that long, but he worked at KOIL. Mean Gene Okerlund used to <laughs> used to love him talking to those wrestlers. It was just. I don't know how big a guy he was, but of course they're all so huge. Compared to the wrestlers, he was a little guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think he's about John Machida's size. Oh, it's been so long since I've seen John. I don't know how big he is. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think I actually I think I looked him up. I think he, uh, not uh, John Machida, but uh, Gene Okerlund. I think he was five nine. And, you know, these wrestlers are all six foot eight and with big hair. So this, this little guy with a microphone. No, brawler. What do you think about souls? <laughs> it's, it's the greatest. So I have to ask, after all the jokes about, you know, it was. It, now I'm paraphrasing here. It was, you know, Neil can do any voice. You know. He, he can even do uh, Queen Elizabeth if you need him. Do you have a Queen Elizabeth voice? No, I don't. That was uh, that was to illustrate how my first uh, agent, Donna Lee Davies, rest her soul, was really in my corner. And people, as a joke, used to say, you know, if we called Donna up and said we need to voice match Queen Elizabeth, she'd say, what about Neil Ross? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> no, I do not have a Queen Elizabeth. But... I just figured maybe for shits and giggles, you would have put one together. No, no, it's, uh, maybe I should get to work on that. One never knows. We need to voice match the queen. Are you up to it? Of course. <laughs> That's not bad. It's not good, but it's, it's not bad. I've heard worse. <laughs> I've done worse in the shower. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a story. Not really. It, well, it, it's a story. It's a metaphor you use for communism in your book that I'm curious as to where you heard it because I had only heard it in my family mm -hmm. like my, my granddad uh, used to tell it to us all the time it was about the widget makers yeah 
And your book was now the only time I've ever heard it outside of the family. So it it kind of threw me. That's, you know, I sort of thought I made that whole section up on my own, but it it may be I read something along those lines and didn't realize I was paraphrasing a real thing. It just uh, is just based on uh, how how we're discussing communism in a book about voiceovers, I should probably explain, and that is that some people... Uh, attempting to become spokespersons in commercials are bothered by the fact that they're involved in this commercial activity and and, uh, they have a hard time with it. And I just said, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to think to yourself, boy, all this advertising, it's a waste of money. What if they poured all that money into just making the product, just have one company make cars and they don't have to advertise because there's only one car you can buy. And, and then they could put all the money into the cars and the cars would be great. And that, you know, and I, I, in the book, I say essentially that was tried. It was called communism. And uh, human nature being the way it, it is, it just didn't work. It was one of those ideas that probably looked good on paper to Karl Marx and people like that. But the truth of the matter is that uh, competition improves the breed. And if you only have one person making widgets, I guarantee you they're going to be crappy widgets. But if you've got a bunch of people competing for the customers, now you get top. I mean, you know, arguably without a Microsoft uh Apple wouldn't be as good as they are. And without an Apple, Microsoft wouldn't be as good as they are, assuming you think they're good. And so, yeah, I just drives business. Yeah, I just uh, I just use widgets to take it away from kind of specific product, you know, but that goes back to the uh, my my, uh, sentiment on the importance of reading, because, you know, I, 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 I key in on different things that different aspects of the story that not many people would key in on because that, that that was something that meant a lot to me because yeah. I have a personal connection to that story yeah so I was I was like wow that's that's interesting uh, another interesting another interesting you have a lot of interesting stories um, but there was one story in particular that I could hear vividly come off the page. Well, I'm looking for this. I didn't realize... Uh, so you were a huge fan of uh, Blazing Saddles, huh? Oh, loved it. Genius, brilliant. I don't know if he'd be able to make it today. Oh, no. Yeah. I t- you know, it's funny. I took my wife to see it. I'd already seen it a couple of times, and I, I think it was a revival a few years after it came out. She had no idea. And we sit down and it rolls and that first scene comes on where the, they're building the railroad and there's all these racist comments being made. And she stands up and she says, I'm not going to sit here and look at this. And I grabbed her and I said, just sit there. You're in good hands. Mr. Brooks will not fail us. And then they start singing cocktails for two and <laughs> you've seen the movie and she got it. She said, oh, I see where we're Okay, I guess I'll stay. But she was ready to walk. It's not as bad as it looks. Yeah, yeah. The uh, story that I'm talking about was you had uh, you had to do a quick uh, one paragraph uh, read, and you got put in front of Little Richard. Oh yeah, yeah. And you got it in one take. And now that in and of itself is cool because, I mean, to be able to get anything in one take just is awesome. But then, you know, like I said, I could hear little Richard's response, which is, you know, and in, your, in your book, it's, you know, I left the booth and to my amazement, little Richard went bananas, jumping up and down, sounding like a revival preacher. He shouted, he got it on take one. I don't believe it. He got it on take one. I've been in this business 40 years. I've never seen nobody get nothing on take one. You bad, Neil Ross. You bad. I got to tell Bo Diddley about you. You (laughs) That was the the best part. I got to tell Bo Diddley about you. I mean, reading the book, you could hear that. 
That's exactly what he said, as to the best of my recollection. Uh, and that's that story sort of pays off something that happens in one of the early chapters of the book, where I'm about eleven years old. And I hear my first rock and roll record, and it changes my life. And that record was done by a guy named Little Richard. And uh, that's the first time you heard Tutti uh, Frutti, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it absolutely was a life changer. And I got to to tell him that, I meet him years later, and tell him that uh, after he had told me how. <laughs> How brilliant I was for having managed to read a paragraph without screwing it up, you know. Uh, but getting it on the first take is very rare, but only because here's what happens. You do it and you hear, geez, that was, uh, that's that's exactly what we wanted. I mean, uh, God, that I was just right on the nose. Uh, any technical problems, uh, Ralph? We're good? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I, you got it. But let's do a few more just in case, you know. An hour later, take 47, uh, but this guy that we were working for at the time just said, we got it, you're done, get out of there, and uh, you know the rest. You got it, we got what we paid for, get, get the hell yeah. out of my booth. Well, I lo you know, I love a director who knows A, what he or she wants, and B, knows when they've got it. Which is not an easy thing to do. Uh, I've had to direct on rare occasions, and it's, it didn't go well. But it's, it's lovely to work for somebody who, as I say, knows what they want and knows what they've got when they get it. Do you think if somebody were to go back in time and tell the, let's use obstinate, obstinate child that you were, that you would be this famous voice artist today, do you think you'd believe him? Believe him? Hmm. I don't know that I was an obstinate child. I was annoying, but I don't know if obstinate. Well, let's not dwell on that. Yeah, as I as I say in the book, uh, and there's a picture in the book of me at the age of about 16 in my little homemade radio studio in the garage trying to teach myself how to be a disc jockey. And I look at that uh, fresh, uh, young uh, face, and I... I think, what if I could sort of parachute into his life and say, uh, you're going to be stricken with amnesia the minute I leave, but just for a split second, I'm going to tell you what happens to us. Whether he'd be thrilled or say, is that it? Didn't we do more? I thought we were going to do more. I don't know the answer. Uh, I, I, I got a lot further than I ever thought I would, I'll tell you that. So I don't know, you're pretty obstinate when it came to uh, reading and art. <laughs> That was a fun story, and interestingly enough, that's what sold me on the book. Like I got, I got to that part of the book. It's like I'm hooked. I got to finish it. Yeah, that was that was. In, in, as I as I say in the book, there, there's little sort of signposts in my life, maybe in everybody's, that sort of f f foretell what's going to come. And I got my first voiceover job in the fourth grade. And uh, the way that happened was every Friday afternoon we would do art. And I'm absolutely hopeless. There's, I can't draw. I can't this. I can't that. And in my frustration, I would start goofing around and, and disrupt the class. And the teacher would get mad at me. And I just suddenly one day I had this genius idea. And I went up to her and I said, you know, I'm lousy at art. We both know that. How about if I sit in front of the class and read aloud while they paint? And God bless the woman. Uh, you know, most teachers would now sit down and paint a pony. Do what you're told. But she said, all right, let's try that. I guess I'd driven her so crazy. She was willing to try anything. So that's how I spent the fourth grade on Friday afternoons. I read them Huckleberry Finn and then uh, or Tom Sawyer and then Huckleberry Finn. I forget how it went. But yeah, read aloud for couple hours every Friday afternoon and uh, that was my first uh, pro bono voiceover gig <laughs> like I said I got to that part of the book I said yep I'm hooked I'm I'm in it to the end now I mean th there's no turning back I like this kid this is my kind of people <laughs> I'm glad to hear that yeah that was a uh, it was a remarkable thing to have happened as I look back at the time. I, well, I had no frame of reference, so I took it for granted. But, uh, yeah, that was a rather remarkable moment. Well, then, 
later in life, you uh, uh, another moment that we had similar was when you uh, managed to annoy your friend's mom with the uh, record. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I did that with my friends, with one of my friend's moms with uh, Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell. Mm. He had it. I wanted it. I went over well, every day, just like you did. I was listening to it. I, I mean, I had it memorized. Mm. And after about three weeks, solid, she meets me at the door, brand new copy. Here, please mm. leave me alone. Yeah. I can't take it anymore. Well, that's essentially what happened with me in a record uh, done by the late to great uh, genius uh, Peter, Peter Ustinov. And it was a, a record called uh, uh, Grand Prix du Rock. And it was a satire of radio coverage of sports car racing. And he plays every part, does every sound effect. It's absolute genius. And that was where I, f I, li I just listened to it compulsively. I, I, I didn't know why. But uh, actually what I was doing was soaking up everything he did. And, and then I would start to imitate it. And that's that was really the beginning of my be, being able to do voices and accents. But yes, uh, the first time I heard it, it was at a friend's house, and I just we we'd go over there after school every day, and I'd say, "Put that record on again! Put that record on again!" And I guess we drove his mother insane. So she met me at the door with a mint fresh copy, as you said, and said, "Here, this is your copy. Go home and listen to it. <laughs> go drive your parents insane." Yeah. And I did. <laughs> and here we are today. Yes. Uh, for those who haven't read the book, uh, what was it like announcing the Academy Awards? Probably the most uh, frightening experience in my life. Um, Again, one of those things that's you know great to do if you have anxiety. Yeah, I mean that to me that's the big that's the biggest tightrope act in the voiceover business because it's all live. And you have to take cues, and they're sometimes confusing, and you have to read all these names correctly. And some of them are not that easy to pronounce. And uh, you, as the minutes tick down to showtime, you realize uh, you have a, uh, the potential to make a complete ass of yourself in front of the cream of Hollywood and another 30, 40 million people in the country and God knows how many more worldwide. And so that's just a wee bit of pressure. But um, I was lucky I got through it without any, any difficulties. But uh, the last uh, five minutes before airtime was almost like waiting to be executed, I'll tell you. There is one story I would like you to retell from your book, if you would, because it... It shows persistence and then the payoff of persistence. It's the uh, Joe Harnell uh, Fly Me to the Moon story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I my last radio work was in Los Angeles at a now long gone radio station, 710 KMPC, which was owned by Gene Autry, the singing cowboy. And we were in these lovely uh, studios on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. And the station at that time was playing sort of nostalgia music. And uh, one of the songs we were playing was Tony Bennett's uh, Fly Me to the Moon. And I pointed out that while I, no slur on Mr. Bennett, he's a wonderful artist, but the doesn't, doesn't anybody remember the big hit version of that, uh, Fly Me to the Moon, by uh, Joe Harnell, the jazz pianist? And uh, I made a, a bit of an annoyance of myself, and they finally went out and found the record. And uh, one of the guys brought it in and said, you've been such a pain in the butt about this. You might as well be the first one to play it on the air. So here it is. So I went on the air and I basically told the story. I said, you know, I've been bugging management to find this record. I mean, it was a huge hit in the 60s. And, uh, you know, I think you'd enjoy hearing it again. I'm sure you remember it. Here's uh, Joe Harnell's classic, Fly Me to the Moon. And boom. And I thought no more about it. And then... Um, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks later, I get a call at the station, and it's Joe Harnell. 
And he tells the following story. He, that morning, was lying in pre-op, waiting to have open-heart surgery. And scared out of his mind, convinced he was not going to get up off the table, uh, that he was going to die during the operation. And uh, somebody put a radio on, and it was tuned to our station. And he heard me do my rap and play his song. And he said, oh, he said it was like it was like uh, the universe talking to me, telling me everything's going to be okay." I mean, what an insane coincidence. Just before I'm going to have an operation, you come on, talk about me and my song. And he and he said, I I just I went I went into that operation uh, feeling uh, total confidence just as they were putting me under. And he said, I don't know if you believe in the mind body connection, but you might have saved my life. And I said, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm really touched. And thank you for calling and telling me that story. And, of course, years later, I meet and work with his son, Jess Harnell. And I told him the story. And he remembered that. He said, oh, you're the guy. Okay, I get it. Yes, yes, I remember that. I remember that very well. And Mr. Harnell went through the operation with flying colors and lived another, I don't know, 15 years, something like that. I say it is it is a beautiful story. And it, like I said, it's one that it shows persistence pays off. And it it's also the, you know, squeaky, squeaky wheels, the one that gets oiled. But, I mean, you know, you wanted something, you set out for it, and damn it, you got it. Yeah. You know, you well, know that's what you what... wanted. People come up to me sometimes at conventions and whatnot, and then they're aspiring voice artists. And uh, they want advice, and I always tell them, listen, uh, I got started in the early 80s, and I am the world's leading expert on how to get into the voiceover business if it's 1981. <clears throat> but if it's 2020, uh, I may not be as knowledgeable as, as some other folks. But I got to believe that regardless of what twists and turns the business has taken, and the business is completely different from, from the way it was in the early 80s. How could it not be? Everything changes. But I, I think what, what never changes are the, are, the, are the fundamental values, and I, I call them the three Ps. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's practice uh, and persistence. Persistence is a funny thing. There's a way of being persistent without being annoying, and, it, and it's a hard, hard thing to, 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 uh, to work. But it, it, uh, you, oh, and, and, and patience. That's the one I was looking for, patience. You have to, a, a lot of, uh, it seems like a lot of uh, younger people, because of the world they've grown up in and, and seeing, you know, dot-com billionaires who aren't even 30 years old yet, they're impatient. They want to do it all. They want to get to the top uh, right away. They'd, and, and, to, and to me, you have to have persistence and patience because I think a really solid career, it's not based on gimmicks and connections and who you know. It's based on just taking it one step at a time, learning your craft, being patient and persistent and practicing and uh I th I th that that would be my message to anybody who's trying to get in the business. I I I, I can't tell you what what class to take or who to hire to to make your demo, but I can tell you I I honestly believe if you practice the three P's, you will end up with a solidly uh, a career with a solid foundation, not one that's built on on shifting sands. So nice. Do you have uh? A dream role, if you could, like just one role that b before you end your time on this planet that you could uh, tackle. What it could hmm. be? I don't have anything specific. I would like to. I would just like to keep doing this as long as I can. You know, and play the parts that are appropriate to whatever talent I have, and. I don't really, I don't really have an ideal role. Uh, there, 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 there's no Hamlet I wish I could play. Someone's, someone's got to write it, and I gotta, I gotta win that audition, and then I just enjoy the process, you know. Nice. There's one more story I want to touch on, and then we'll uh, wrap up because I don't want to give away all your stories, and people won't buy your book. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, oh, the, the damn. 
so long. I think it's longer than War and Peace. We'd have to sit here for another 10 hours to get all of them in. But Hey, if you're anyway, down, I appreciate- down, I could talk about every one of them. No, I uh, think we I think I think we've done well. The uh your uh interactions with Jonathan Winters were funny as hell. And I think the biggest payoff was when you got you you, you were I want to say bested by Jonathan Winters. You had asked <laughs> for the uh, autographed picture. Right. And you had asked asked for him to say to the best young actor I know. And he fires back with, well, I can't do that because he's not. And well, it's a little, it's a little more to that than, than I, when I, when I asked for the autograph to a picture, we were the series had wrapped and I didn't know when I was going to see him again, but we had the same agent who I've mentioned earlier, uh, Donnelly Davies. And I said, Donna, do you think you could get uh, Jonathan to sign this for me? She said, oh, sure, I'd be happy to, sweetie. I'll take care of it. And I said, yeah, just have him, you know, sign it, maybe write a little something on there like, oh, I don't know, uh, to the greatest young actor it's ever been my privilege to know, something like that. And I thought she knew that I was kidding. Uh, but she gets on the phone and she says, he'd, he'd like you to sign it, Jonathan, and, and, and he'd like you to say to the greatest young actor, it's ever been my privilege to know. And he said, I can't say that, Donna. He's not. <laughs> <laughs> and she told me, I said, you, you didn't you know I was? No, I thought you were serious, sweetie. I said, oh, dear God. I'm humiliated now that he... <laughs> He signed it anyway. And, uh, well, what would have made it better is if, you know, he would have wrote all that on the picture. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, I can't sign this to this because, yeah. <laughs> you know, that would have been true Jonathan Winter's style. Yeah. Now, he wrote something about the, he had this odd smile on his face in the picture. His lips are sort of pursed. It's not, it's, anyway, he says, I'll keep those BBs in my mouth forever. <laughs> that's not bad i'd rather have that than the other thing well to paraphrase your character from uh one of your characters from transformers i'm sure you have better things to do today than podcast <laughs> uh, i've got better things to do tonight than podcast actually i don't but it's a good yeah. line uh so i want to thank you for being on the show um, oh, well, thank you for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. And uh, if I may, I will s- send you some links for the book. Maybe you could put them up somewhere. Oh, yeah. I will gl- I will put them in the uh, episode description. And uh, if for some reason you are hearing this in a situation where you can't access that, uh, if you're curious about the book, I have an easy-to-remember website devoted to the book. And it's just www.neilbook.com. Who couldn't remember that? N-E-I-L-B-O-O-K.com. And uh, all that you need to know is there. Well, folks, he told you where to find him. Now, you can find me on Facebook at Moose's Marvelous Wood Burnings and more where we've got wood for you. You know, folks, there's a lot of moose out there. And if you haven't heard it here, It's probably just bull spit. Until next time, folks. Have a good one. Ooh-wee. That sure was some bull spit. But I sure had fun. Junior, you need some help. Be sure to tune in next time. 